the link between the events on Mount Carmel and then the chapter 19 is this strange race to Jezreel. And you see it described here at the end of chapter 18. Uh, there is a race, if you like, between Ahab and Elijah. Now, now we know at this point, and we said it already, Elijah is here functioning as the prophet of God. He is the mouthpiece of the word of God in the ears of the people and indeed in the ears of Ahab the king. But he runs and runs before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel in verse number 46. I say, how is this possible? Ahab in his chariot and Elijah on his feet. How can such be so? Well, we're told in verse number 46, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. That in itself is a sermon. If you trace, again, the occurrence of the phrase, the hand of the Lord, you'll see it here in Elijah, you'll see it often in Ezra and Nehemiah, and you'll see similar language in the Acts. The work of God only advances by the hand of God upon that work. God's mighty hand, operating, enabling his will to be done in the lives of his servants. And yet at the same time, we see Elijah, while he had had God's hand upon him, was careful regarding his own responsibility. He girded up his loins. He's careful to ensure that his robes do not trip him on the way. And again, we see just a glimpse of what it is to serve God in this world. The hand of God, as we do our best to serve God in this world. But why did he run? Yeah, we see him running with the hand of God upon him, but why? Why did he run? Well, perhaps you could say a little humorously, he didn't get a ride with Ahab. Ahab wasn't going to invite Elijah into the chariot. Again, there's perhaps some application there. The people of God should not expect help from unbelieving, ungodly rulers. God's work is done God's way by God's servants. Carnal rulers do little to help the godly in a society. He ran, though, particularly before Ahab. Again, note the language very, very carefully there. He ran before Ahab. That is very deliberate language. He runs as a herald. As a herald runs before a king. So Ahab is the king, but Elijah is the prophet of God. And the word of God always comes before the king. The king must rule according to God's standards. And what you see here is Elijah is at the gates as the chariot of Ahab goes thundering past. So you know what it says here? He ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, you may not get the signs of that immediately. Why the entrance? Why is he standing there as Ahab thunders past? Well, the entrance of a city in Jewish times was the place of decision-making and judgment. And I'm going to suggest to you the scenario here is that Elijah, acting as God's mouthpiece, goes before Ahab to Jezreel to give Ahab the opportunity to seek the mind of God for the future. He's going to the gates of the city, the place of decision. I'm not going to take you through the proof of that. Please take my word for it. The gates, the entrance of the city in those days was a place of decision and a place of judgment. The prophet is giving Ahab the opportunity to seek the word of God and the guidance of God in the future. But sadly, 
And that narrative continues into chapter 19. Ahab, if you like, ignoring Elijah at the gates, goes directly to Jezebel. That's why he's going to Jezreel. Ahab's going there because, or Elijah's going there, sorry, because Ahab is going there. And ignoring Elijah, he goes to Jezebel. And sadly, God is blessed in Carmel, and yet that blessing may be superficial. Baal worship is dented, but God's word is still not chief. See, falsehood can be cast into the dirt, but God's word must be chief. We see times of blessing on both sides of the Atlantic, times of revival, and yet sin continues to abound. The absence of real change sets the scene for the events of chapter 19. You've got to understand that. It is the absence of real change in the nation that sets the scene for what's happening now in chapter 19. Now, I'm not saying that individuals were not impacted on Mount Carmel. But when you get to the events of chapter 19, you see there is no root and branch reform in the nation. The leadership has not changed, and the nation is largely unchanged. Even when you get on down to verse number 18, there are still only 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Beal, even after Mount Carmel. There has not been this radical change that was anticipated. Now, ordinarily, this chapter, chapter 19, is looked on as an insight into the feelings and the depression of Elijah. Many modern uh, Bible counselors and people who deal with people's mental health have looked at Elijah as an example here of depression. They see Elijah as a man falling into doubt and despair. And at times, I think I've also used Elijah in that way. I would not do so today. People say, well, look at Elijah. If he can get to the point where he feels suicidal in verse number 4, well then, if that can happen to Elijah, then that can also happen to you. And they use it in that way to, again, understandably give comfort to those who are suffering from such profound bouts of depression and despair. My encouragement to you today is please do not make fast conclusions. Don't jump to assumptions and conclusions regarding Elijah in this chapter. I want to try to explain that today. The change is so sudden. From Carmel to the hand of God in verse number 46 to then this seemingly despair in verse number 4. So quick. Has Elijah fallen so far so quickly? Perhaps, but we must be certain before we make such a statement. Folks, I have no desire to be novel. You know, sometimes you, you come to passages like this and people know it so well. And you think, well, how can I make this novel and new? I, I don't desire that for one second. And what I'm saying today is, is not my own thoughts. I've read others who share similar thoughts and have come to similar conclusions. What I want you to do is examine the text with a clean slate. Leave aside your preconceptions, your notions that you bring to the passage, and simply examine the text for itself. And does the text itself allow particular conclusions? 
we must never make assumptions. We must always examine the Bible. And the prevailing notion is to see Elijah here as a fallen, weak, and depressed character. But is that fair to Elijah or indeed fair to the text itself? Now, if we assume this, then we'll draw lessons from that assumption, but not lessons from the text itself. We've got to be so careful here. And you can preach a great sermon, depression here. If you're depressed, have some food, and that's you fixed. That, that, that sort of thing is happening. It's not what the text is dealing with, folks. We've got to beware our assumptions. Now, understandably, we make these assumptions based upon our own weakness. We want to see ourselves in the text. We want to insert ourselves in the text and say, well, I've been like Elijah. And thus, we draw comfort from God's servants and their feelings. Again, I'm careful here. God does do that. We've looked at David's life in recent years, and we see his weaknesses and sins. But ordinarily, when we see those sins, we are left from the text itself, in no doubt, as to their sin. We see it clearly. My suggestion here is we don't see things quite so clearly here in Elijah's case. We tend to read between the lines. We state that Elijah must have felt this or must have felt that. We put ourselves in the position of the modern-day psychologist and put Elijah on the couch, as it were, and psychoanalyze Elijah as simply presuming what he must have felt like at this time without examining the text. Now, before we go on, there are two things we should understand. On the one hand, we are clearly told by James that Elijah was a man of like passions as we are. That's how the word describes Elijah. Like passions as ourselves. The word for passions there is homeopathies. You've got the ending there, pathies. We get words like sympathy and empathy from that term. And so the word means like feelings. Elijah is a man of like feelings as us. Like emotions. Yet in the text, in James, James is simply stating that God answers the prayers of one who is like ourselves Human in our emotional capabilities. God is not like us in that sense. He is not given to passions with those changed extremes of emotions. But men are, and so we are like Elijah. But the text in James does not require that those emotions be negative. They may be. But James doesn't say that. It simply says he's a man of like passions as we are. But emotions can be positive and negative. That's the first thing to see. Yes, he's a man of emotions. But don't use James to then insert here negative emotions to Elijah in this text. Furthermore, never forget, Elijah is a man who is unusually favored of God. He is translated to heaven without dying. He appears on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is like Enoch. And yet Enoch's not in the mount. He's on the mount with Moses, but Moses is not translated. He is unique in many ways in the biblical narrative. We must be very, very, very careful to bring negative conclusions and harsh judgments to bear upon Elijah without clear evidence in the word of God. 
suppose today, if nothing else happens, I want to encourage us to see our hearts and the tendency within our hearts to make harsh judgments. That is how we find ourselves in a fallen world. We are a tendency to be harsh in our judgments towards others. Soft on ourselves and harsh towards others. So, before we go into the detail of this text, and I understand this is, a very, this is an unusually long introduction. Brother Patterson, this is not normal, okay? It's a long introduction. But I can't go next week and the following weeks without setting this down. You've got to see the big picture to understand the opening verses. So bear with me, please. We first of all assume that Elijah is running here from fear. That's assumption number one. Elijah must be afraid of Jezebel. There's nothing explicit in the text to say that Elijah is afraid here. It is not in the text. Now, there is an unusual textual variant in the Hebrew in verse number 3. And so those who would use a modern version, their modern version will say, and when he feared. The Hebrew word for fear and the Hebrew word for saw, those Hebrew words are very, very similar in their form. And the idea is, again, the textual variant Well, was it Saul first? Was it fear first? Who made the change? Was somebody made a change? And again, I can't go, I don't understand all the arguments behind it. I'm not going to be, uh, pretend to be something I'm not. But it's a very, very strong argument that fear was inserted in newer copies because of the assumption that Elijah was afraid. But the text in its original simply says, when he saw. He saw the events in Jezreel. He saw what happens with Ahab and Jezebel. He sees those things and he goes for his life. That does not mean, it does not mean that he runs for his life out of fear. You can preserve your life without necessarily being afraid. Wisdom may make him run just as much as fear may make him run. Secondly, we assume in verse number 9, so first assumption, he must be afraid. Second assumption, verse number 9, is that the question asked in verse number 9 is a rebuke. You'll hear it read. What doest thou here, Elijah? In the sense of the foreboding voice of God bringing this word of rebuke to Elijah. You shouldn't be here, Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? You're in the wrong place, Elijah. That's all assumption. And I would say it's a completely wrong assumption here. Here, the geography of the situation is helpful. You see, what happens in these verses is that the angel comes twice and gives Elijah food. And the reason is given for that food in verse number 7, because the journey is too great for thee. That's the next journey. It's not replenishing the carbs from the previous journey. He's gone from Jezreel to the wilderness, and now he's going to go to Horeb. You want the geography? Philadelphia to Harrisburg, about 100 miles. In those days, Jezebel's far, far away, long, long way away. 
But Elijah gets to himself, and he's going to go all the way to Pittsburgh, another 200 miles in the turnpike, and he's going to go there in the strength of the food that the angel brings. Why all the journeys? If he's simply going to try to avoid Jezebel, he's gone far enough already. Because, here's the point, Horeb's the significant place. Horeb in Bible history, think Moses, think Covenant, think Horeb, think Elijah, now bringing a charge against the people. Your people have broken your covenant. He's going to Horeb because God wants him there. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's not a rebuke. It's an invitation to bring judgment. You've come this way, Elijah. What's your purpose? And he comes and stands as a judge of the people and says they have broken the covenant. And so thirdly, we then assume, verse 14, that the words of verse 14 and verse 10, of course, that these words are the depressed, self-pitying reflections of a fallen prophet. We read these words, we say, oh, listen to, yeah, listen to Elijah's woe is me. Oh, I, I only, what a, what a pitiful prophet, self depreciating. Look at me. How poor am I? That's assumptions, folks. That's a complete assumption upon the text. Because what happens in verse 10 and verse 14 is the statement of truth. He is simply saying what was true. And what happens in result of that, verse 15 to verse 18, are God's words in reply to Elijah's judgment. Look at the people, and God says, I'll deal with them. Two kings, one prophet will sort this out and will bring judgment upon the people. And by the way, Elijah, you don't know it, but I've also got a remnant according to the election of grace. I'll judge the covenant breakers, but while I do that, take the comfort and the truth that there's still 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He's coming upon Horeb as a prophet of God and a judge of the people. He's coming in the room instead of Moses. And I will come back in the coming weeks and consider these verses. But you cannot understand verse number four without seeing that larger context. And the temptation is to work through it verse by verse and say this and this. And my worry was, well, I'm going to get to the end of the chapter and have to re-preach the first sermon. So that's why we're taking the time today. Please understand the context here. He is going to Horeb in the will and the purpose of God, serving as a faithful prophet of God, not as a failing prophet of God. He's a good guy. He's got the hand of God upon him. Let's not assume things from the text. So in light of all of this, what do we learn from his brief time in Jezreel. He goes to Jezreel. He goes to the wilderness. Well, what do we learn from these things? Well, very, very quickly, three quick, quick, quick lessons. We see once again the hardness of the unregenerate heart. That Jehovah is God was clearly proven without doubt on Mount Carmel, yet nothing changed. Ahab, Jezebel are as hard in their sin as they ever were. Krumacher is a very helpful uh, work on Elijah, and he's, he's, he's very, very verbal and very descriptive in his language. I want to read this section uh, regarding his 
accounting of this event when Ahab comes to Jezebel. Ahab, full of the tidings of these strange events, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets of the sword. We can picture with what emotions he would enter her apartment and say, The Tishbite has triumphed. Fire from heaven has confirmed his word. Upon his prayer I beheld with mine own eyes flames fall from the skies, consume the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and lick up the water in the trench. All the people can bear witness to it, would say Ahab to Jezebel. They would bear witness to it. They fell on their faces and cried out as with one voice that Jehovah is God. The priests of Baal are slain. Elijah and the people destroyed them, and their blood is flowing in the brook Kishon. They were laughed at as liars and impotent deceivers. Their authority and their worship is gone forever. There is universal order for Elijah. He is a prophet of the living God. The miracle in Carmel has placed it beyond a doubt, and these heavy rains completely confirm it. As his command they fall, he closed heaven and has now opened it again. That's Krumacher's impression of verse number one, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Between verse one and verse two, young people, there is a huge space. What did she say to Ahab? How did she respond? Well, we don't really know, but we can guess. Verse two, then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, well, we can guess what's happening here. Undoubtedly, she is displeased. And we see evidence again of the hardness of man's heart. When you think of Ahab, there are really two possibilities. On the one hand, he may not have seen the obvious hand of God. Look what it says in the verse. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Such is the hardness of man's heart that they, they do not perceive the works of God and they attribute the works of God to the works of men. And he says, all that Elijah had done, God is not in all of his thoughts. Psalm 10, verse 4, again, the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. But there's also the strong possibility that part of the reason for Ahab's hardness of heart is the influence of Jezebel. He goes to Jezebel, and Jezebel is the one in verse number two who takes the lead in the situation. Her power and her influence is so strong. Again, I borrow Krumacher. He says this, Many persons in every age are thus led blindfold by human influence. The chains with which the prince of darkness binds man to his yoke and banner are not always the grosser vices and passions. He secures thousands to himself and to hell by attaching them with the silken cords of a tender affection to persons who have taken part with the foes of the cross of Christ. Whatever the bond may be, whether paternal, filial, conjugal, or social, the effect produced is the same. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Now Ahab has no good manners. 
but the power of influence is so very, very obvious. Young people, guard your peer group. Guard your friends on social media. Guard your hearts against all manner of corrupt influence. And do not, pres- do not presume that you are too strong for their influence. Evil, popularity, are very, very strong factors in leading young people into the ways of the ungodly. People raised in the church, their peer group are their parents. We don't like parents, let's follow our peers. They're wiser than our parents. And they follow the influence of the ungodly. The hardness of heart is there. I'm not suggesting people are saved and then lost through influence. But those who are hard in heart, they are further hardened in their heart by those around them who they will gladly follow. And you know what's even, perhaps even stronger than this? Is the influence of a spouse. There is something about the marriage bond that that influence is stronger than everything else. And that influence can be for good or it can be for ill. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Peter 3 highlights the positive influence of a godly spouse towards an ungodly spouse. Husband here today, is your influence on your wife to lead her in the things of righteousness? Do you direct her in the paths of godliness? Or is your carnality such that it makes her difficult to express her love for Christ in the home? Because that doesn't please you and rebukes your own coldness of heart. Dear wife, have you no time for Christ in the home? And you're hindering the godly influence of your husband. Here, Yvehab and Jezebel, birds of a feather stick together. They're quite happy in their complacency. But please note the power of influence upon the heart of man. Ahab's not changed. Jezebel's not changed. She's got eyewitness account to what happened. Ahab saw it with his own eyes. He goes to Jezebel, and she will not change her heart. You know, we do all we can in our evangelism to make the gospel clear and plain. But such is the hardest of man's heart that no matter how plain and clear we are, the only hope is in God changing the heart. We've said this before dozens of times. I say it again. Our only hope is in the power of God to change the heart. But that is our hope. Man's heart is not too hard for God. And whilst we see the hardness of men's heart in their rejection, God can change the heart. You know, there were those in the gospel record. You can look at it in Matthew 27 and Matthew 28. The rulers, they they come together, the body is missing. Well, let's concoct a story. The disciples stole it. Do you know why they concoct that story? Because in chapter 27, they record the fact, they rehearse the fact that he had said he would rise again. They knew the prediction. The prediction comes true, and yet they're still hard in their hearts that they will not believe the obvious truth. Is it any wonder people reject the gospel? Such is deception and such is man's natural hardness. But I wonder, in Acts chapter 6, we are told of many priests who become obedient to the faith. I wonder, were they part of that group in Matthew 27 and 28? I don't know. 
But could they be? Could they be those who at the end of the gospel were part of the group concocting the story about Jesus being stolen? But they then come to faith in God. Why? Because of the power of the Spirit of God upon the human heart. Drawing souls affection to Christ Jesus, the only Savior of sinners. The hardness of human heart. Secondly, very quickly, the hostility of satanic opposition. Je- Jezebel's ire here, verse 2, is ultimately against Jehovah. She would have known that Elijah didn't send the fire. She would have known that that was not possible. And so her anger here is against the Lord through the medium of his prophet. A couple of things. When God's truth is publicly made manifest, satanic opposition rises. I remember talking to some of the older men in our denomination back in Northern Ireland in, the, in former days, and they would mark of times of great revival in the late 60s and the mid-70s in Northern Ireland. They'd mention those times when God was pleased to save a multitude of souls in a very short time. And they all would say, times of blessing, but times of tremendous trouble as well. Satan is always active when God blesses. It's also worth noting that when people rage against God, they generally vent that anger against his servants. That's that's good for you, preacher. You're a preacher. I I get you understand this, that if if people are angry against the Lord, they'll be angry against you. You, I can see that. Folks, it's not about me. It's about you. Because you all live in family circles where you've unconverted loved ones. And at times, your loved ones, they rage against you. You think, what did I do wrong? Well, their anger is against the Lord. That's what people do. They rage against the Lord's servants, publicly or privately. So Christ would say to Saul of Tarsus, why persecutest thou me? The ungodly, they conspire against the Lord's anointed. But they show that anger against the church. Again, our, our time moves so quickly. Today. I don't want to turn here now, but you will see Jezebel is used in Revelation chapter 2 as an emblem of satanic opposition in the church of God. She's mentioned in the church of Thyatira as the one, uh, her name being used, uh, if you like, as a picture of satanic opposition. Satan's ways in that church, seeking to lead people away from the ways of God. Satanic opposition continues in false teaching today. Jezebel may not chase Elijah around the wilderness, but she deceives false, she deceives souls through the use of false teaching. Well, thirdly, very quickly, the hopelessness or the loss of hope, sorry, in a discouraged prophet. You see, on seeking to reflect upon the whole passage, I've encouraged you not to think of Elijah here as having a a genuine bipolar mental illness. That's a real thing. Where people go through heights of activity, great abilities like like Carmel. Elijah's in a a manic phase. And when you get to the juniper tree, he's now in a depressive phase. And so they say, this is clearly early bipolar mental illness. Please don't see Elijah in that category at all. I encourage you. That's a real thing, but that's not what's happening here. 
nor do I believe he ran in fear. But I would suggest he is discouraged by what has happened in these events. He does run to Hebron. People say, well, it must have been because he's afraid. Well, no, I've said that already. No. He runs, not because he's afraid of his life being taken, because he goes and then asks for his life to be taken, verse number five, four. Furthermore, by the way, why did Jezebel send a messenger and not just an assassin? She has no plans to kill him here. That is not politically expedient after Mount Carmel. That's my suggestion here. He's not running in fear. She's threatening him, but she's no active plans to kill him. Her power, her ability, no problem. So he's going, he's running. But he himself does not try to take his own life. That's not what happens here. He understands that his life is in God's hands and requests of God that he might die. Why? Lots of questions. Well, I suggest to you that he feels that his work is complete. That's what he says in verse number four. It is enough. My work is done. If the events of Mount Mount Carmel can't change the hearts of the king and the queen, well, then nothing will. Nothing's going to change the hearts of people. My work here is done. I I can do no more than Carmel. Carmel and the hand of God, my prayers, God's answered those prayers. Where do I go from here? Fair question. Where do you go from Carmel, Elijah? It's enough. He also says in verse number four, I am not better than my father's. Now again, there are some here who insert here the idea of Elijah's pride. Did you think you were? And they suggest to you, here's here's an example. Here's a prideful spirit of Elijah. Now let's let's get at him again. Or again, could it simply be that discouragement that he did not succeed where his fathers had also not succeeded? Those who went before him. They'd seen the progressive declension of the nation from Jeroboam's sin all the way to Ahab, generation by generation. And the promise of God had not stopped that declension. And now Elijah says, I didn't do either. You see, in seeing Jezebel's response, I believe he is downcast that he felt or he thought that the hope for religious renewal was seemingly lost. And he is discouraged. But that discouragement is not in itself intrinsically a sinful discouragement. It is a reflection upon the times. And God is going to be pleased to correct his thinking in some areas. There are some very simple closing applications for today. We can get discouraged by the hardness of men's hearts and so little progress being made for God. Such discouragement can impact our attitude in the Lord's work, in the life of the church. I don't think this is just for pastors. You know, I, I, I labor in this all week. I'm in the study. I'm in prayer. I'm trying to see the work of God go forward. So little seems to happen. Discouragement comes in. You go, I'm not, I'm not doing better than my fathers. And that can definitely be a tendency in the pastoral ministry. But I do not think the people of God are exempt from that. 
Many of you have been faithful in this church for 30 plus years. Look around you. There's way, way too much blue in this room. I see lots of blue. The blue pews. Some of you remember times when there was less blue in the church. This wasn't. There were people there wearing nice bright dresses and all manner of clothing and you couldn't see the blue so much. I preach now, I see an awful lot of blue. And the tendency can be, oh, no better. Try my best. Six and a half years and nothing's changed. For you, 30 years of prayer and inviting your friends and loved ones and nothing's happening, nothing's changing. And you go, oh, I can just get discouraged. And you can get discouraged. And what happens? Wednesday nights. It's just another prayer meeting. 30 years of prayer meetings. What's occurred in those 30 years? Nothing much at all. What's the point in going to prayer meeting tonight? Or you come to the Lord's Day. I'm tired. I'm just going to stay home tonight. I don't need in the Lord's house in the Lord's evening. It's not important. I can do just as much good in my own house as I can in the house of God. Discouragement has a crippling effect upon the people of God, not just the pastor. And we give up in our evangelism. We give up in our outreach. We give up in our prayers. We give up in everything because we say to ourselves, it's enough. All of this effort is enough. We have got to be so, so careful. And we must have realistic, biblically informed expectations of what we desire God to do. We all love to read revivals. We love the books. And we have the expectation that revival is normal when it's not normal. This is normal. And the Lord said as much. We understand as Paul and Barnabas go to encourage the churches, they confirm the souls of the disciples, they exhort them to continue in the faith, and they encourage them with this wonderful truth, through much tribulation you enter into the kingdom of God. <laughs> That's an encouraging message, isn't it? Well, it is. Because it's factual, it's realistic. And it may be the case that in church history, the blue is more common than the color. And we live in the midst of blue in the church of God here. In the pews that we can see. Because this is more normal. These times of tribulation testing our faith. And causing us to get on our knees before God. Biblical expectations. Not all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So dear people be faithful. And leave the results up to God. You Americans, you're all number-driven. And so are we. How much money in the bank? That's how successful we are. How many people in our church? That's how successful we are. It is required of stewards that they be found successful. Faithful. Faithful. How's that going? Are you being faithful in your calling? Or have you succumbed to the discouragement of this age? The Lord's word will not return void. It will do its job. But that work of the word may well be as much in judgment as it is in salvation.
but his word will not fail. So beware, presuming the nature of your work. Beware, presuming that your duration of your work is done and your time of serving God is finished. Just renew, by the help of God, a determination to be faithful in the work of God. Christ Jesus is still the same. He is still the God-man, the only mediator between God and man. He is still the one who died upon the cross and rose again and ascended to the right hand of God. He is the same Jesus. His truth is the same as it is in days of revival. And his faithfulness to his people is no less today as it was in days of plenty. So press on. Make much of Christ in your life, in your family, and in the work of God. And may be glorified in his church. Let's pray. Eternal God and Father, we come before you and we pray that by your grace, our assessment of your prophet has been faithful and true and accurate. Help us, O oh God, always to have a, a kind spirit towards others. I don't presume the worst, but rather see your grace in their lives. But dear Father, we do certainly see in Elijah the tendency within our souls to assess our faithfulness by what happens as a result of our efforts. Oh Lord God, I pray in your mercy, help us to make much of Christ. One man sowing, another watering. And may you in your sovereign timing be pleased to give the increase. Glorify your name in our community. Do, O oh God, be pleased to send a revival. And we will give thee all the praise and all of the glory. But as we wait upon thee, deliver us from any discouragement. Help us to press on the things of God. Be pleased, dear Father, to strengthen our hearts today. As we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.